This past year, we have studied two books in the Old Testament which are named after women, the book of Ruth and the book of Esther. What I hope to do today is to tie the two stories together. I realized as I was writing this sermon that I'm depending on you a lot to remember each of the stories, because otherwise this would be a really long sermon as I would retell each story. Both stories have much in common, for which we, uh, which we should take note of. We'll begin with some of the basic stuff and then, and then work our way through. Let's start with this. Both stories are presented as accurate representations of historical events. That is to say, they really happened. These are not fairy tales. These are not myths. These are not legends. These events truly happen, and the authors give us historical context. So the book of Ruth, for example, begins, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. It's a particular time. It's the time of the judges and a very specific geographical location. They're from Bethlehem and they go across the border into Moab. Esther opens this way. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. That time King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa and in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. Again, we're given very specific historical context and geographical location. We notice that Ruth is much more national, if you wish, or local. Well, Esther is international in, in context and scope. This is a king who ruled over 127 provinces from India all the way over to Cush. But in many ways, the scope of the story is not the important aspect. What we find is there are two women, one in each, who play a prominent role. One is not Jewish, that is Ruth. She was a Moabitess. Esther, on the other hand, is in fact a Jewess. Both of these stories revolve around a marriage. I don't know if you thought of it in that way. Uh, both marriages are the result, or they are what we would call mixed nationality marriages. Ruth is from Moab. She marries Boaz, who is Jewish. Esther, who is Jewish, marries Xerxes or Ahasuerus, who is in fact Persian. Both of the men are much better off, if you wish, in terms of their standing in society, their finances, than are the women. <coughs> uh, Boaz was fairly well-to-do, and Xerxes Ahasuerus was, in fact, the king. In both stories, a crisis arises, and the women go to the men for him to solve a problem which apparently only he can. Ruth goes to Boaz, and Esther goes to the king. And yet, even though they are looking to the men to help solve this problem, each of these women, in fact, have worked to resolve this problem following certain practices. So Ruth gleans, and then we hear about the Leverate marriage, we hear about the kinsman redeemer. I mean, these are all very legal things within the Jewish law. Esther, on the other hand, has to deal with the law of the Medes and the Persians. That is to say, once something is written down as a law of the Medes and Persians, it can never be changed. And so then she has to come up with a solution how to get around that. It is worth noting that in these two marriages, we have Gentiles, Ruth and Xerxes. 
and both of them had been married before. Ruth was a widow, and Xerxes had divorced Vashti because she refused to show up at the banquet. Um, it's worth noting. Both of these women are urged by their Jewish relatives, Naomi urges Ruth, and Mordecai urges Esther to do everything they can to marry the man that ultimately they do marry. They exert significant pressure, influence on the women in these stories. But they are not blood relatives. Uh, Mordecai, perhaps, but he is her adopted father, Esther's adopted father. With Naomi, she is the mother-in-law. But the influence that they have over each of these women, I think, is quite remarkable. Particularly for me in the case of Ruth, because Naomi is the mother-in-law and, and her, her son is dead. One could say she has no authority whatsoever. And yet Ruth does as Naomi instructs her. There are other similarities, but at this point I want to sort of go in a different direction and look at the differences. The big difference is geography. Uh, the story of Ruth happens in what we call Palestine, whereas the story of Esther takes place in a place of exile, exiles for the Jews, a place known as Persia. They both revolve around a marriage, true enough, but the biggest difference is that Ruth, who is a Gentile, marries into the Jewish faith, into the Jewish nation, and Esther, who in fact is Jewish, marries out of the faith. She marries a pagan. And that, I think, is an extremely important difference. Both of the stories involve tragedy, but in Ruth's story, we find it at the beginning. It's when there's a famine, Elimelech dies, and then his two sons die, and so we have three widows. And then we sort of leave that behind, and Naomi goes back home. The tragedy has been done with. In Esther, tragedy is the thread that sort of ties the whole story together. That's what it's all about the threat by uh, Haman against the Jewish people. So in Ruth, tragedy is sort of a minor issue, and in Esther, it is central to the story. A big difference, too, in a word is Boaz, because Boaz is a man of real spiritual uh, maturity. This is a man who shows real quality as a human being. And we don't find anyone like him in the book of Esther. One could argue that his equivalent is Xerxes. Well, he's a pagan. And you say, well, what about Mordecai? Mordecai shows no spiritual traits whatsoever. Um, he seems to be rather stubborn and hard-headed and encourages his niece to do something that she should not do, and that is to participate in the contest to become the next queen. The book of Ruth ends on a spiritual note. This is where King David comes from. And so the book of Ruth is probably written during the time of David or perhaps even after David. So we, we are given a genealogy and the last verse says, Obed the son of Jesse, or the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Esther ends quite differently. It's very political. It's all about politics. Um, King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. And then the last verse of the book, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all Jews. If, in fact, I were to give each of you a quiz and to say, what would you say is the biggest difference between the book of Ruth and Esther? I think it is that in the book of Esther, God's name is never mentioned. 
Whereas in the book of Ruth, um, we find God's name mentioned from time to time, even in passing conversation or in greetings. The Lord be with you, Boaz tells uh, those who are working for him. One could make the case, even though we find this big difference, God is not mentioned in Esther and he is in Ruth, that even though he is not pictured as being directly involved, there's no place, even in the book of Ruth, it says, and it came to pass that the Lord did this. We don't have that at all. But we have a very strong sense that he is, in fact, working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. King David comes about as a result of a family during famine who goes to Moab and there all the men die and Naomi comes back with one of the widows so we have two widows and then it's a time of harvest everything comes together so I mean it's very clear and then Esther is the one who is close to the king and who can beg for her people I do think and I mentioned this when we went through Ruth um, And for me, this is the most important passage in the book of Ruth. I I don't know that many would agree with me on this, because I think most people remember for Ruth, uh, don't ask me to leave you, I will go with you, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. You hear it at weddings oftentimes. But for me, it's also in chapter 1, it says, So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. This is Naomi and Ruth. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. It's a wonderful picture. After being away for so many years, and they, as they're walking into town, people are like, she looks familiar. Can this be Naomi? And she rejects the name. Naomi means beautiful or pleasant, delightful. Instead, she insists on being called Mara, which means bitter. And she gives four reasons why she should be bitter. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. The Lord has brought me back empty. Her husband and two sons are gone. The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord Almighty, or the the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So I mentioned when we went through this, Naomi does not blame her circumstances. She blames God. But as I said then, in this there is faith. Because who else is in control of all things? Who else is in charge of human history and events? Because otherwise you say, well, bad luck. I just had, you know, things didn't work out and don't know why. You know, just things didn't work out. Naomi's very clear. In her mind, it's very clear why these things have happened. This is what God has done. She refers in the first and the fourth aspect of the complaints, because there are four parts, as the Almighty, and in the second and the third as the Lord. The word in Greek, or I'm sorry, in Hebrew is Shaddai, the Almighty. We first encounter this name in Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. The Lord reveals himself as the God who can transform man's helplessness into blessing. And a year later, Isaac is born. When Jacob sent Benjamin with his brothers to Egypt, he didn't want to do it, but they had no choice. He said to his sons, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. 
He speaks of the hope of God's protection at a time of uncertainty. Before he dies, Jacob blesses his sons. And he says to Joseph, because of your father's God who helps you and because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above and blessings of the deep that lies below. He speaks of Joseph's coming fruitfulness, but there will in fact be harassment. And he attributes this to the Almighty. All of these in mind, when we read Naomi's words about the the Almighty has done this to me, it is as though she is saying, you see all the bitterness I've experienced? The famine, the losses, the questions, the parting, the apparent hopelessness. I know God as Almighty, as Shaddai. And I can leave the explanation and even the responsibility for this bitterness upon him. It is, I think, the key passage in the book of Ruth. But as with the story of Esther, we do not have any direct statements. As I said, we don't have, you know, and the Lord brought it to pass, or the Lord did this. We don't find that in the book of Ruth. But we do find God arranging things for his people. For Ruth to marry Boaz and give Naomi a grandson, continuing her, her husband's line. For Esther to arrange deliverance for the Jewish people. But there can be no doubt. We should have no doubt. If we believe God to be God, the creator who is still at work, the sustainer of all things, and the one who is guiding his creation to the new creation, it is God who is at work in both stories, whether he's mentioned or not. The big difference is that he's acknowledged in Ruth. We don't hear a peep about God in the book of Esther. Boaz, as I mentioned earlier, greets his workers. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. They called back. And then he says to Ruth, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In reviewing these two stories, one thing that struck me was the scope. The book of Ruth is about the survival of two women, two widows. The book of Esther is about the survival of the Jewish people, an entire people, because the 127 provinces, the edict has been sent out that they are to be killed. God acts to preserve them all. In studying Esther and Ruth, I see in them examples of how we may act or may have acted. There are times, particularly in difficult circumstances, when we realize only God can fix this. Only God can make this right. And he may use me to do it. He may use other human beings as instruments. But it is God who is going to do this. I may have to work hard. Ruth did in gleaning in the fields. But God alone can take care of this. And when we do this, we are like Ruth. But there are other times, I think more often than not, that we are more like Esther. We face real difficulties and we think and plan and scheme to solve the problem. I want to be careful. I don't think that that is necessarily wrong in and of itself. Where we get into trouble is when God is nowhere to be found in our thinking. We think that we alone can solve the problem. And our lives come to resemble the book of Esther, in which things 
Great tragedies are averted, but God is not mentioned in the book, or at least in the chapter of our lives. There seems to be no thought that, oh, yeah, the Lord is the one who did this. I don't want to browbeat you or to load guilt upon you, but I want us to consider this reality that God is at work in your life and he has been all along with or without any acknowledgement. I think when we look at the book of Ruth and the book of Esther together, we find a large portion of the spectrum of human life. In Ruth, it's quite personal. In Esther, it is personal for her and for Mordecai, but this is much more national, international. We have God acknowledge, we have God not acknowledge. And you just look at the full spectrum of how we might think or act. And yet, wherever you are in the spectrum, God is at work. God is looking out for his people. I think that oftentimes what we try to do is to live lives without grace. And lives without grace require no forgiveness. Let me see if I can explain. Do you ever think about your past? And perhaps this is an affliction as one gets older. The decisions that you made and the things that you did may be silly, foolish, may be wrong, even sinful. And you think to yourself, if only I had it to do over. I think this is only natural. But if we are not careful, what we imagine as we seek to relive our lives without mistakes, without sins, is that in some way we are trying to live lives that require no grace, that require no forgiveness, because we would have done things exactly right. If we had it to do over, we wouldn't make the same mistakes, we wouldn't commit the same sins. We would get it right and we would have no need of grace. The reality is we can't do it over. I'm sure you're aware of that, except in our minds. But this is, I think, one, one way oftentimes as Christians we look at the past and there is no need of grace. Another way to look at the past is to hold on to the mistakes and the transgressions. I read this quote to you last Sunday. In our little worlds of perfect justice, we assume that our failures will frustrate God's purposes and disqualify us from joy. We therefore live as if guilt and regret are righteous, fear holy, Despair a wise conclusion to draw from the mess we have made. But God has far too much at stake in us for that to be true. Why do we live as though guilt and regret are righteous? Why do we hold on to the messes that we have made? Because in a very twisted way, we are trying to live lives without grace or forgiveness. Or at least we are imagining that we are doing that. It is not that there is no need of grace, as in the first view of the past that one imagines, but rather that grace cannot bring about the forgiveness, the new creation that our lives require. You see, whether at any given moment, day, week, month, year, I think I would go with moment, we are living like Ruth or like Esther, it is always a gracious and loving God who is at work. When we are doing the right thing, 
when we are living lives of obedience, when we are doing wrong, doing the wrong thing, and living as though he does not exist. He is still lovingly at work in our lives with infinite grace. And this brings me to the unnamed woman that we looked at last week in Luke chapter 7. A woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. For the sake of argument, I just want you to consider. Which of the two characters in the story would you rather be? Simon the Pharisee or the unnamed woman? I would suggest to you that the question is not as easy to answer as you might imagine. Because sure, we don't want to be like the Pharisee. We don't want to be like Simon. But on the other hand, consider the woman who had lived a sinful life. Consider the damage living a sinful life had brought with it. The psychological scars, the emotional scars, the social consequences, being known as the sinful woman in town the physical consequences of sin, the memories of a sinful life, memories that you can't quite shake, the wasted years. Somehow Simon doesn't look so bad right now, does it? Surely if there was a person who could say, if I had it to do over, here is that person, this woman. But she didn't have it to do over, and we don't either. Instead, in repentance, she turned to God, and she was forgiven. While all indications are, at least in my opinion, Simon was not forgiven. And this woman was overcome by emotion in her worship of Jesus. If I didn't make it clear last Sunday, Jesus articulates the reality in her life. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? That her sins have been forgiven, I think, should have been evident to every person in that room. Something had happened to this woman. A profound change had come over her. But they couldn't see past her past, past her sins. As oftentimes we cannot see past our own past or our own sins. They could not understand or appreciate the fact that she had been forgiven. Instead, they are offended. They are offended at what Jesus has to say. That somehow he has taken the divine prerogative and forgiven and has forgiven her sins. As I mentioned last week, it, it, it may be that Jesus is saying, as God, I have forgiven her sins. But I think more likely it is her sins have already been forgiven and he puts into words what she has... Somehow she hasn't had the full realization. Something has happened. I mean, the burdens are gone. A change has come over her. Healing has begun in her life. But it's Jesus who has the words that make sense. Your sins have been forgiven. Jesus does that for her. Now let me be clear here at the end of this series, actually two series. I'm not saying it doesn't matter how we live, that we can live like Esther and God will still make everything come smelling you know, like a rose. Everything will just turn out wonderful. I'm not saying it doesn't matter how we live because God is gracious and will forgive. 
In terms of the two women, we are to live like Ruth, who diligently sought to serve Naomi to do what was right and what was proper. And not like Esther, who participated in a moral contest for the possibility of marrying a king, a pagan king. Instead of doing what God intended, that she marry a righteous man. Though we are prone to being more like the book of Esther, no mention of God, no mention of prayer, no indication of praise or thanksgiving. No mention of scripture even. We can't simply say, well, that's just the way I am. Damon, on the spectrum of things, I, I tend to be more toward the Esther side than the Ruth side. So, it's just the way I am. I've told you the story before, but when my nephew was young, I was teaching him how to brush his teeth. He and his parents lived next door with me. Excuse me. I was teaching him to brush his teeth. He was about three years old. So I was pretty happy with what I had done. But then I noticed after a while that he was no longer brushing his teeth. And I said, Lindsay, I, what's, what's up? You, you haven't brushed your teeth. And his response to me was, it's just the way I am. That is not an appropriate response for us as God's people. To say, well, Damon, when you look at the spectrum, you have Ruth at the one end and Esther at the other. I just tend to be more over on this side. It's not acceptable. Not acceptable. We are to live lives of obedience. But we are to recognize that wherever we are, past, present, or future, it is by God's grace that we are enabled. And it is by His grace that we have been forgiven. I don't fully understand it, but for some reason... God has an easier time forgiving us than we do forgiving ourselves or others. Tess read to us today that we are to forgive as we've been forgiven. But somehow we want, we shouldn't, but we want to live lives that require no grace. Either we want to live the perfect life and so God doesn't have to forgive us, or somehow we cannot believe that we are forgiven. And so we hang on to our sins and, in a sense, reject God's grace. It's not the call of God's people. God loves us. God is gracious to us. He has forgiven us. And we are to live in that light. And as the woman in Luke 7, we are to praise God and to thank him and to worship him for what he has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, I'm sure that each one of us, when we look over the past of our lives, there are things that we really regret. There are things we have done that we are ashamed of. Things that we know were wrong. And for some reason, we cannot let them go. May we be like this woman whose name is not given because it's in many ways not the most important thing about her. It's the, the fact that she was forgiven. 
May we not try to usurp your position, living lives without grace, either imagining a perfect life if we had it to do over, or a life in which our sin is greater than any grace you might bestow. Help us to realize that in the moments when we are closest to you, and the moments we are farther, farthest away from you, and every moment in between, you are there with us. You are gracious, you are loving, and you care for us. Whether we're at a roof moment or an Esther moment or anywhere in between, you are God. The God of all grace. I thank you for what we've learned from these two books. From the woman we saw last week in Luke six, uh, Luke 7. May we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. We pray for those that aren't able to be with us today. You would watch over them, particularly for those who are struggling with health. And we thank you again for giving Marcus three years. How good you are to us. Now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.